Thank you very much for that introduction, Ryan. Yes, I'm a retired elder, and I'm thinking I'm also getting a bit old to be an enthusiastic gardener. But you know, uh, Nolan and I have, despite moving to Gilkeel, have continued to be in fellowship here, and it's such a privilege to share in fellowship and friendship with you. And as I was sitting there, or standing, listening to the singing this morning, as we sang, How Great Is Our God, the acoustics of this wonderful building and the voices of uh, His people really made a wonderful impression on me. So, let's turn uh, in the Bible to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 28. Now, we heard from Stevie Rogers last week uh, that chapter 9 marks a turning point in the work and journey of the Lord Jesus Christ. Up until uh, now, He has spent nearly three years of ministry training His disciples, uh, performing miracles, and establishing His credentials as the, the true Messiah the Son of God. But by the end of this chapter, it says, as the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. So, the passage we're reading from today marks the end of the first phase of His ministry and leads us into His journey to Jerusalem and death on a cross. And in our reading uh, this morning, we're going to come to what is known as the Transfiguration. And in this account, we are given an insight into a totally different world from the one in which we live in. In this insight into the kingdom of God, we travel outside time and space in our universe and get an insight into God's kingdom. We're going to look at what actually happened, why did it happen, and what can we learn from it. So, let's turn to God's Word and read. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, He took Peter, James, and John with Him and went up into a mountain to pray. And as He was praying, the appearance of His face changed, and His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about His departure, which He was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, as the two men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah didn't really know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it, drive it out, but they couldn't. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, 
How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him. Then an argument started among the disciples as, they, as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, said Jesus, for whosoever is not against you is for you. So, much of Jesus' ministry prior to this section that we've read from took place in proximity to the Sea of Galilee. It's an inland sea about 90 miles north of Jerusalem, and many of Jesus' miracles took place around that lake. There was a walking on water during the storm, turning water into wine at the marriage in Cana, healing the Roman centurion's son in Capernaum, or the feeding of the 5,000. The people in this region would have been very familiar with Jesus, and the crowds gathered wherever he went. So, it's not really surprising that from time to time, Jesus tries to get away from the crowd to seek solitude with his disciples. He needs time to be with them, to get to know them, for them to get to know him, for, them to teach, for him to teach them who he was and what he meant. And getting away from the crowds was important. Their constant demands on him, their constant pleading for miracles, for healing. He had fed 5,000. He had talked about his future death in the passage uh, that uh, Stevie referred to or read from last week. Now he wants to go up, out of, away from the crowds, into a mountain to talk to his Father, to pray to God. And he takes Peter, James, and John with him. Now, it's interesting that elsewhere when Christ prays, particularly at Gethsemane, he takes those three disciples with him. They seem to have been, if you like, an inner circle, uh, men who had a deeper insight and understanding who Jesus was and who he could commune with at a deeper level. And verse 28 says, they went into a mountain to pray. Now, we can't be sure which mountain it was. Uh, traditionally, it's thought to be Mount Tibur, which is the, the site. Um, uh, there is a, a monastery and a church there. It was identified 200 years after Christ's death as a possible site. Others think it was Mount Hermon, which is to the north of Galilee. Now, Mount Hermon is a huge mountain overlooking uh, Syria and Damascus, about 9,000 feet tall. Mount Tuber is much smaller. I was uh, recently in the company of a, a Jewish Christian, and I asked him, he lives in Israel, he, he works in Israel, and when I asked him which mountain did, did the transfiguration take place, for what it's worth, he said it was Mount Tibor. 
And the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all describe the events that followed. Jesus starts to pray. We can imagine him on his knees <clears throat> speaking to his Father. Luke records that the three disciples were dozing at this point, falling asleep when at prayer. That was a, something they seemed to do, get into a habit with. And Jesus says, as Jesus, Luke says, as Jesus was praying, his appearance changed. His sun, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. And by this stage, the three disciples were fully awake, and as they looked on, two other men joined Jesus in glorious splendor, and they began talking to Him. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus and the two others bathed in a brightness that was dazzling to the human eye. The source of the light couldn't be seen. You know, it might be bright in here, but we know where the light is coming from. But here they were, way up this mountain, and uh, they were stunning in their visual appearance. This wasn't a vision. This was reality. All three of these guys were witnesses to it and talked about it later. So, who were the two men that uh, Jesus was with? Well, Scripture tells us they were Moses and Elijah. How do we know they were Moses and Elijah? Well, perhaps Jesus and the two others addressed each other by name, or perhaps they were just instantly recognizable. Moses was the outstanding leader through the history of Israel. He led his people out of slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land, although he himself never entered the promised land. He was the mediator of God's covenant and laws, and he had a special relationship with God. God had set Moses apart, and as his special servant, God spoke directly to Moses on several occasions, and the book of Exodus tells us he saw the glory of God. So, here was Moses uh, exhibiting this amazing glory with Jesus and Elijah. Elijah was the leading prophet during a period of history that is covered by the book of Kings, and he was totally dedicated to the service of God. He, he preached fearlessly against kings and said that people and kings should repent from their sin against God. And Scripture records that Elijah was also granted a special blessing when his time came to depart this life. Second Kings chapter 2 records that he ascended into heaven in a whirlwind. There he's back also at the transfiguration as a representative of God's prophets. So, Moses rep represents the law that was given by God to the Hebrew people uh, at the gathering on Mount Sinai, and Elijah is the chief of the prophets and represents their work in pointing the people and kings of Israel towards God. And God intervened both in the life of Moses and Elijah. God, it said, buried Moses himself and carried Elijah away in a chariot of fire and whirlwind while he was still alive. It's, I think, from reading the Scriptures, Moses and Elijah were the only two people in the Old Testament who experienced and saw the full glory of God. What were they talking about? By the time Peter, uh, James, and John uh, were fully awake and listening to the conversation, they could tell that Moses and Elijah were talking to Christ about His coming death and His departure from this world to the eternal world. And no doubt they sought to give Him encouragement as He sets out on that lonely road to the cross. 
Christ's death and redemptive sacrifice was making real all that Moses and Elijah had taught and struggled for. Peter, however, was always the first to speak up. We see other incidents during the life of Peter when he was with Jesus. He would tend to speak first. He butts in on this occasion and suggests we should build three shelters for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He just didn't get it. He didn't understand that what they were witnessing was not just something happening on earth. It was something out of the eternal world. Luke records that Peter didn't know what he was talking about. But it's obvious that Peter wanted to prolong this moment of glory that bit longer. You know, let's try to capture it. Let's try to keep it on this mountain. Let's, let's build three houses or three tents for, for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Such was the impact that it had on him. But as Peter was making this suggestion, a cloud appeared and enveloped him. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, listen to him. And when the cloud lifted, they were alone. Peter writes much later in his second letter to Christians. He says, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. That voice was, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we heard this voice when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So, we've seen what happened, and and let's ask ourselves for a moment, why did it happen? Well, the effect of the the transfiguration on the disciples was to convince them beyond any shadow of doubt that Jesus was the Son of God and of the existence of another world that we shall call the eternal world for the moment. The three disciples would have believed that in, the, in a world to come, but this revelation demonstrated that this other world, this eternal world, was not just something in the future, but was ran concurrently with our world. Moses and Elijah had lived five, 600 years apart, but here they are talking to Jesus in full view of the disciples. And it wasn't just a vision, a dream. It happened before their eyes. In, such, in our world, such a thing couldn't happen. We couldn't have someone from 500 years, uh, 600 years apart talking. It just couldn't happen. But in God's eternal world, and let's call it God's kingdom, time did not affect God's kingdom in the way that it affects ours. The transfiguration of Jesus and the, the conversation with Moses and Elijah brought together a moment of time in this earth with characters from God's kingdom. It's evidence and a reminder that there is life not just after death, but there's an eternal kingdom in the past, present, and future. The transfiguration with its characters from decades or, or centuries earlier was living evidence that the kingdom Jesus talked about was both earthly and heavenly. I was challenged last Sunday when Stevie Rogers asked us, do we live our lives as Christians with the belief that there is a heavenly kingdom, that there is something beyond what we experience in our day-to-day lives and our faith with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we believe and live our lives a reality, around the reality that there is a heavenly realm that coexists outside our time and space, and that as believers in Jesus Christ, we will inhabit with Him 
there, I think there was another reason for the transfiguration. Just a few days earlier, Jesus began talking to his disciples in very direct terms that he was going to die. He told them that he must suffer many things and be rejected as the Christ and be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, when he told them this, Scripture records they were shocked and offended. Peter actually said, he grabbed Jesus and he said, far be it from you to die, it, it can't happen. So when Jesus started talking about dying, it was devastating to the disciples. And no doubt they began to wonder, is he really the Messiah? They heard the bit about his death, but they didn't take in the matter of his rising from the dead. In fairness to the disciples, they had given up everything to follow Jesus. They'd endured hardships and dangers uh, for their future. They had lost their livelihoods. They had turned away from their families. Suddenly, this person that they had followed was saying he's going to die. They did not at this point understand the, the sacrificial nature of Christ's death on the cross. They saw it, if they believed it at that point, simply as uh, the reaction of the country, the rulers, to killing Jesus. And Jesus and His Father understood that their confidence in Him was shaken. So I believe the transfiguration was there in part to demonstrate that Jesus was who He really claimed to be, the Son of God. Jesus understood their need for faith in Him. And being present and seeing the transfiguration reinforced their faith and prepared them for the journey to Jerusalem and the cross. The, uh, the title uh, of uh, today's talk is The Kingdom is Seen from Another World. And it's a very challenging one. If you were to ask 50 people in this room, what is the kingdom of God and what is the kingdom of heaven, we would get 50 different answers, all of them correct, I'm sure. But let's just talk about this, think about this for a moment. I'm no theologian, so you'll forgive me if I, if I stray beyond the bounds of my knowledge and competence. So the transfiguration is a, is a pivotal moment, and Luke presents the setting on the mountain as the point where human nature meets God, the living place for the temporal and for the eternal, with Jesus Himself as the connecting point bridging between heaven and earth. And the transfiguration not only supports the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, but the statement list by God, listen to Him, identify him, him as the messenger and mouthpiece of God. The significance of that utterance by God, of listen to Him, is enhanced by the presence of Elijah and Moses. For it indicates to the apostles that Jesus is the voice of God, and instead of Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, Jesus should be listened to. Jesus surpasses the law of Moses by virtue of His divinity and relationship as the Son of God. The old covenant was about to be completed, and the new covenant was to be put in place. For Jewish disciples like Peter, James, and John, this could be really earth-shattering, more than they could comprehend. The law of Moses, Mosaic law, was how they defined their lives, how they lived their lives, how they worshipped, whether, um, whether they achieved it or not. So a new covenant was completely outside their competence. The transfiguration 
Also like is the teaching by Jesus that God is not the God of the dead but of the living. And although Moses and Elijah had uh, been taken up to heaven centuries earlier, they now lived in the presence of the Son of God, implying that the same return to life faces all those who have, who have faced death but have faith in Christ. So what is the kingdom of God? Sometimes uh, we think of it, is it as a, as, a, as a church, as a building, as a place? I think it's safe to say that the kingdom of God is not actually a physical place. A working definition of, of God's kingdom from a biblical perspective can be seen as God's universal reign as creator and Christ's exhaustive work as redeemer. And since God is eternal, his kingdom is eternal, the kingdom of God transcends time and space. I was trying to think of an example of, uh, or an illustration. The word kingdom is, is one that's rarely used nowadays, but actually, when I thought of my passport, if you look at the front of your passport, it says, United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, like any illustration, it has got its weaknesses, and how united the United Kingdom is could well be for a matter of debate. But inside my passport, it reads, Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires, in the name of Her Majesty, all those, to whom it, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer of this passport to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as be necessary. So, I got this passport because I was born in the United Kingdom. It's not something, well, it's, people can fake it and forge it and occasionally buy it, but it's something that comes from my birth. And in, in the same way, the kingdom of heaven and us being members of that kingdom comes from our birth. Not our physical birth, but our rebirth. The importance of the kingdom of God is mentioned many times. I think in, in Matthew's gospel, uh, it's referred to about 70 times. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Sorry, uh, in the New Testament, he talks about the kingdom of God. And in Matthew, he mentions the kingdom of heaven about 32 times. Most commentators seem to think that the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are interchangeable phrases, and indeed Christ used them interchangeably at least once. So we have several aspects of the, the kingdom of God. God is the sovereign of the universe, and so in that sense, His kingdom is universal. But it goes beyond our physical universe, all those stars that we can see. There is, I think, uh, God exists. He created the universe, and therefore, he, he exists outside that universe. So the kingdom of God, while it includes our universe, includes much more than that. And, you know, to be members of that kingdom, I come back and stress, it requires a rebirth. So what should we learn from uh, Luke's account of the transfiguration? The transfiguration provides further evidence that Jesus was the divine Son of God. His ministry on earth was to display the coming of the kingdom of God and reveal the pathway to citizenship in that kingdom. And I say again that it's through Christ that we become members of that kingdom. And in doing so, he, divined, he revealed his divine nature to humanity in very real ways. 
The Transfiguration event could be seen as probably the most definitive revelation of Jesus as the divine, next, obviously, to the resurrection itself. Here, Jesus is shown to be greater than the law and the prophets, uh, and that He was the beginning of a new covenant of grace that brings humanity to salvation. And that was so important to the disciples brought up in the Jewish tradition, looking to the Mosaic law and the law and prophets. Here, Jesus is shown to be greater than the law and the prophets. The transfiguration, I think, also demonstrates that the death of Jesus was no tragic event. It was foreordained, as Peter says in his second letter, before the foundation of the world. The shame and the death of the cross were not an obstacle in the way of Christ's establishing His kingdom, but rather a means of establishing His kingdom. And one day the whole universe would see Jesus in the same way that Peter, James, and John had done. We come to verse 37 that we've read, and it gives an account of an event that uh, took place when Jesus and His disciples came down from the mountain. So, Christ and His disciples had gone through this amazing, this glorious event, bathed in eternal light, not physical light. Now they come down the mountain, and Jesus is once again surrounded by a mass of humanity. With their needs, with their cries, with their attitudes, both positive and negative, towards Him, He's in the middle of the crowd again. And out of the the crowd uh, comes a man, and He implores Jesus to heal His only son of demon possession. The, demon, the, the characteristics of the son's uh, illness would suggest it was a form of epilepsy, a very, very, very strong form of epilepsy. And it was destroying the, the life of the son and destroying the life of the father and his family. And the father implores Jesus to heal his only son of demon possession. And even as the father implores Jesus to help his son, the seizure becomes more and more violent. And you can imagine the great press of people around watching this. The disciples, presumably earlier, had been asked to heal him. And you'll recall from Stevie's talk last week that Jesus had sent his disciples out and given them power to heal and cast out demons. But they couldn't do this. It took the power of Jesus. Again, a visual reminder to the people around him that this was no ordinary man. This was a man who claimed, who could, could uh, demonstrate his power as the, the Son of God. In the final two verses we read, Jesus reveals two important lessons about his kingdom. The disciples were debating which of them was greatest, and no doubt the three guys who'd been up the, the mountain and witnessed the transfiguration were feeling they were way ahead of the other guys in terms of uh, their closeness to Christ, uh, their spirituality and all of those things, and they were debating as to which was the greatest. They were thinking about power and advancement in this earthly kingdom. But Jesus interrupts them and does something amazing. He gets a child and sets it down before, beside him and says, if you want to be great, then learn something from this little child. Jesus transforms the normal values of our society. We have in the last week seen displays of human vanity uh, beyond all belief or comprehension. 
linked to power and the holding on to power. But here we have Jesus saying, you know, if you, if you want to know what greatness is, it's in this form of a child. Greatness doesn't come from power or position, but from a knowledge of Christ and through God. And he taught that humbleness was of greater value than self-promotion or self-belief. Before we close, let me ask you the question that Jesus asked his disciples in the earlier part of this chapter. Who do you think I am? Now, each one of us may express an answer in a different way, but I suppose they essentially fall into three categories. Those who accept that Jesus was a great teacher and that the New Testament contains wonderful words for civilization. It's, it's how you live your life. It's how government should govern. It's how people should treat other people. Was he just a, a great teacher and historic founder of a world religion? Others might think, reject the notion of Christ at all. He's a fantasy figure, a myth from the past. In doing so, you'll be ignoring some of the most evidential history available. Uh, it, I read somewhere that there, there's more written evidence of the life of Christ than the life of Julius Caesar. Or perhaps you accept that he is the Son of God, and you fall into one of two categories, those who have accepted him and invited him into your lives. You've joined the kingdom of heaven. You've got that eternal passport. And there may be others who yet say he was more than a teacher and more than a historic founder of a religion. He, was more than a, he wasn't a fantasy figure or a myth in the past. He's the son of God. But, but hey, uh, don't bother me with that now. Do you know, Christ this morning is just waiting to, for you to ask him into your heart, for you to become part of that great kingdom. And those who reject or ignore the claims of Christ cannot be part of that kingdom. But those who respond to his love and his sacrificial death are citizens of God's kingdom. Thank you very much.